0: You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: This is really about a group of people who were not great, did not lead great lives, but are trying to become better. And she said, well, that's impossible. (laughs) And I said, why? And she said, because most philosophers would say that you can't try to be good.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So through December, we're going to be doing a mix of new shows and a couple best ofs. Uh, And the best ofs are going to be either shows that I really, really love and want to be able to put back out into the world and into the feed, or they're going to be shows that I think have a particular resonance to what is happening right now. So this is a best of show. Please enjoy. I've been a big fan of the show, The Good Place. Which is, it's an amazing show that should not exist. It is a hilarious sitcom. It's got Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. and But it's about moral philosophy, moral philosophy in the afterlife. Um, it's about utilitarianism and consequentialism and deontological ethics. And th- th- This show should not exist. It shouldn't exist. But it does, and it is bringing... Uh, some of these questions to a whole fascinating nationwide audience in a very different way. And so I'm thrilled to have the creator of that show, Mike Schur, who's also the creator of Parks and Rec, uh, uh, one of the writers on The Office, I think one of the great television geniuses of our age, and the show's philosophy consultant, Pam Hieronymi, who's a philosopher at UCLA and does fascinating, complex, like really deep work on what human agency is and how to live a moral life. So I have them here to talk about basically how the show got got co-created, how Schur has used his relationship with Hieronymy to develop an actual philosophical framework for a show, but then turn that into a show that people might want to watch. They have interesting disagreements on some of the underlying ethical questions. So this was just a very fun episode. And um, I think it's kind of inspiring to see people creating such a remarkable piece of entertainment based on such a deep application of moral principles. So I really enjoyed this episode. I hope you do too. My email, as always, is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, Kleinshow at Vox.com. One other thing quickly, we're gonna be doing another AMA episode at year's end. So if you've got some Ask Me Anything questions, send them to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Mike Schur and Pam Hieronymy. So how did the two of you meet? How did this
1: partnership begin? Well, I'll start and then Pam can fill in. Um... I had the idea for The Good Place more than four years ago, and I started doing some reading about moral philosophy, which is a subject I was always interested in but had not a lot of knowledge about. And uh, so I, I read some sort of overviews. I read Michael Sandel's book Justice, which was a, a sort of famous compendium of the big ideas in moral philosophy. And then I started sort of getting into some deeper stuff, and I didn't understand much of it. And I decided that if I was going to be able to write this show the way it needed to be written, I needed someone to help me. So <laughs> I uh, I thought it would be easier if that person were local. So I, I literally poked around on the UCLA faculty website and um, I found Pam's name and I looked at what she had written. I found some of her papers and although they were a little opaque to me, the themes and subjects she was writing about were exactly the ones that I wanted to write about. So I wrote her an email out of nowhere and said, I'm a television producer and I'm working on the show that needs some philosophical guidance. Can I buy a cup of coffee and and you can just uh, tell me what to do? And so she said, sure. And I drove to a, um, Starbucks in Santa Monica and, uh, I, uh, and she wasn't there, and <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh no, did I get the date wrong? What did I? What Did I, did I screw this up? And I sent her an email. And it, she was like 45 minutes late and she suddenly wrote back and was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I totally forgot we were I meeting didn't. today. <laughs> and I, to me, this was great. Right. Because That's this, exactly what you, this is a power move. Well, it, it, if it were a power move, I think I would have walked. But <laughs> what I read it as was this is exactly what you want out of a moral philosophy <laughs> guide <laughs> is a, a person who was so deep in thought and lost in her work that she totally forgets to meet with a TV producer. That's, that's exactly what you want.
3: That's exactly what happened.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, so then she came and sat with me, and um, I sort of explained the show, and I said, this is really about a group of people who were, um, who were not great, did not lead great lives, but are trying to become better. And she said, well, that's impossible. And I said, <laughs> why? And she said, because most philosophers would say that you can't try to be good. It turns out this is actually one of the subjects of her writing, is whether or not people can try to be good. And uh, she said, yeah, most most people would say you can't try, you, just ha- you either are good or are not. And I said, well, did anyone ever say that it's possible to try to be good and to become better? And she said, well, sort of Aristotle. And I was like, great, I got one. I got one <laughs> guy, I'm gonna bank the whole show on Aristotle. Um, and then over the over the last few years um, of writing the show, she has come in and actually sort of given lectures to the writers. Um, and we call her or email her from time to time and say, like, do you is this right? Are we on the right path here or not? Um, so she sort of became one of a couple of our we call them our faculty advisors. She has advised the writers on the, of the show in various uh, aspects of philosophy for the last four
2: years. And what was your experience of that, Pam?
3: Pretty much the same. Um, So the absent-minded professor thing is real. If I don't put a reminder on my calendar, I get lost, and that's exactly what I did. (laughs) So I was pleased that Mike was there and that he... We we spent a long time, maybe like three hours, talking. Um, So I was pleased that I didn't mess that up. It was was an extremely fun conversation. I'd like to say that everybody thinks that you can't be good by trying, but I I think that's me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I oh, I see. <laughs> it was your personal bias. <laughs> why why, why can't
2: you? If you're if you're outside this world, that sounds crazy. Like I, know, I, I try to be good. Why can't right, I? Why right. can't I try to be good?
3: No. It, it, um, so it's a good title because it sounds crazy. No, the idea is that if you're in a position to try to be good, it's because you don't have the right motives. You don't have the motives of a of a good person. And Aristotle's advice and many people's advice is well, then do what the good person does until you become good. So basically, fake it till you make it. But the problem is that if practice makes perfect, then you should just become really good at faking it. (laughs) Why would you become a good person? I mean, uh, motives aren't like muscles. It's not like just by repetition, you make them better. So there's got to be something that happens to you in that process of faking it that actually changes your point of view, that actually transforms your motives in some way. And that is something that's more receptivity than it is effort.
2: That's interesting. So if you have good motives, one thing that that raises for me is this question of, well, we have a lot of motives that are competing for attention at all times. And we listen to some and don't listen to others, or we get distracted by some and not others. Um, The example I'll use in my life is that I cared about animal suffering for a long time before I stopped eating meat, um, which is an important thing to me now. But it's not that my motives on some level weren't different, it's just somehow others were drowning out the better one. Uh-huh. So given that motives are so manifold, how does that play with that idea?
3: Well, so as you're pointing out, there's a variety of motives and then there's um, what actually carries the day for you at a, at a certain point. And if you're trying to be a better person, what you want is for the happy ones to carry the day. Um, and so uh, the question is, Is that a matter of willpower or effort or trying? uh, Which I don't want to say that that I mean that has an important role to play. Or is that a matter of learning um, and coming to see being
1: being transformed in some way by your experiences? But here's what I don't understand, though, Uh and I don't know if I ever asked you this question. Um, We're just taking over this podcast now. Just just a dream. The dream (laughs) is that I
2: don't have to do anything today.
1: (laughs) Um, What if your motive is to be a good person? What if you say, what if you look at the world and you say, "Boy, there's a lot of awful people around." Uh-huh. I really want to become the best person I can be because I want to add the most good into the world uh-huh. in whatever however you define that. So what if your motive and your actions are the same thing?
3: This is actually what started me into philosophy when I was an undergraduate. So you can imagine you're a storyteller. You could tell the story where there's one person who's uh, trying to be a better person, and that very fact makes them kind of irritating. <laughs> right? (laughs) And kind of a pain in the butt. Sure, And somebody else who's trying to be a good person, just like sincerely in a way that is, um, is honorable and, and, and to be encouraged. And, and that difference I think is fascinating.
1: But, but in other words though, if you, if you're a person who just looks at the world and says, boy, there's a lot of unpleasantness and there's a lot of evil and there's a lot of poorly motivated people. And I think the path through this for us is to just that we all just need to become better people. Mm -hmm. And that's my pure motive. My motive is just to become the best person I can be. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try to do that. Mm -hmm. The motive and the goal are the same, right? The motive is to just be good for goodness sake. And then you're trying to, achieve that.
3: Well, so, um, so, so. Why are you
1: skeptical of this hypothetical person I'm inventing? (laughs)
3: Because I can, because I can think of two different hypothetical people and, and, and I need, I need them to be distinguished. So one of them is a kind of overachiever who, you know, like maybe went to a high end school and has set themselves the goal of being a good person in the same way you might set yourself the goal of winning the Olympics. Right. That's what they're going to do and they're going to do it um, you know it's it's not that they're just in it for the self glory but they've entered the competition so to speak with an idea of what it is to be a good person and everyone around them is failing and they they think that this ideal is maybe they think it's beautiful maybe they think it's worth pursuing i don't mean to make them super selfish but they're pursuing it in a in a as a kind of high end performance
1: but That's why? But why are you assuming that? Like, I'm that, not.
3: I'm saying there's two different kinds of people. There's two different. Y- your description admits of two interpretations.
1: Right, but I'm I'm suggesting that the imagine. Forget that person. Forget oh, that okay. jerk. Forget that Dartmouth grad who's yeah. like, I'm going to win <laughs>
3: Dartmouth. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is a
1: person who went to Dartmouth. <laughs> forget that Dartmouth jerk who's like, I'm going to just be the best because it's awesome and it will uh-huh. bring me personal glory. What about that? You and know, act- what about a person who's sincerely just wants to be a good person and sets that as his or her objective.
3: So I wasn't I was wanting the Dartmouth person not to pursue personal glory, but to That
1: was that was the good version? The one you just
2: laid
3: out was the good version? Uh no. Uh so so you you made an even Ezra, worse person. you can
2: version. take five. We're going to just keep talking about this for a while. <laughs> I'm I'm I left a couple minutes ago. <laughs> I've been having lunch for like 10 minutes. <laughs> No, I'm listening. I want to. I want to hear this. I want to hear this go through.
1: Wait, the, just to just to clarify, the person you just laid out in your mind was the was the bad version of a person who wants to be good.
3: So, the, so, so the good thing that I want that I haven't yet heard is that the person one already thinks they have it worked out what it is to be a good person, instead of being open to that always needing to be something to keep learning. And two, I'm worried that the person has um, set a certain abstract ideal instead of the being concerned about the concrete situations around them.
2: How much is good in this argument relying on the effect a person has on the world? And how much is it relying on their motivations for having an effect on the world? Like, what does good mean here?
1: Consequentialist or deontological?
3: I assumed we exactly. were talking about virtue. So okay. I assumed we were talking about personal character.
1: Okay. So... Okay. Let's go back to our Dartmouth grad. Okay, Dartmouth class of 09 Mm -hmm. was let's say neutrally good in Dungeons and Dragons terms, chaotic neutral. Mm -hmm. Uh, when he or she, let's say it's a woman, she entered Dartmouth and she, uh, in her four years at Dartmouth, she, um, she looked around the world and she saw a lot of societal ills and, and social ills and poverty and, um, and political issues and everything else, and she said, "I my goal is to just uh, achieve virtue. I'm going to try to achieve virtue in the Aristotelian sense. So I'm going to find, I'm going to take all these virtues that uh, we can all agree are good things, and I'm going to try to find that exact, whatever you want to call it, that golden mean, the exact right amount of of courage and generosity and and kindness and whatever. Mm-hmm. So her internal motivation is pure, right? It's not based on I'm going to do this so that I can be elected to office or I'm going to do this so that I can uh, make money or anything. It's mm-hmm. pure it's it's good for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. So that woman can or cannot try to be good in the in the uh in the virtue sense in the Aristotelian sense. Can she can she, what what's wrong with her trying to be good if all she
2: wants is to be good?
3: Um well so if her motive's pure enough she's already good. <laughs> No, even if what she does
2: doesn't end up having a good effect on the world
3: uh, so,
2: I, I, lo- I just love these <laughs> I, love- I
1: love these conversations. They're so fun so she but but what if she's not though what if what if she what if at- at- in her four years at Dartmouth, she slighted her friends on occasion and she maybe cut corners on some papers and she maybe fibbed a little bit when her professors asked her why mm-hmm. she hadn't turned in her or yep. uh, whatever and she once wrote an article for the Dartmouth Review that she now regrets like what so she's not good okay in terms of her actions but you're saying if if her if she the moment in other words in the moment she decides that she wants to be good for goodness sake she is a good person
3: well, no. So let's say she has a good motive in there, and then she has some bad ones, and then she's going to try to be better, right? And let that good motive uh, get get broader, right? How's she going to do that?
1: <laughs> I don't know. She's going to like be nicer to her friend when her friend asks her to take her to the airport. She's going to do like tangible things uh-huh. that are when put when she's presented. With a test, a trial, Uh where she's trying to find that perfect Aristotelian golden mean Uh of virtue, Uh she's going to try to get closer to it than she was before. Mm-hmm. So a week ago her friend said, "Can you take me to the airport? It's freezing here mm-hmm. in Hanover and I got to get out of town." Right. And she was like, "Oh, that's annoying." And she made up a little excuse for, uh, mm-hmm. "I will if you need me to, but mm-hmm. I it's annoying." And then a week later, and she's had this revelation. She wants to be good. Mm-hmm. She wants to be better. She says, "Yes, of course I'll take you to the airport." Mm-hmm. So so she's better now than she was a week ago, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So what so she can try, so she's trying. She's trying to be a better person and she's succeeding.
3: So, yeah, so Aristotle's advice is good advice, like you you should try to um and it and it's not that you can't pay attention and do exactly what you just said, right. It's that if you're going to become somebody who now cares about taking your friend to the airport, it's not clear to me that wanting to be good, abstractly conceived is the same motive as the motive that your friend right so if you say if 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 the friend was like thanks a lot i really appreciate it and she said oh no problem see i'm trying to be better that might be a little weird so
2: i want i want to come back i'm going to cut dartmouth here for a minute because i want to come back actually to this question later of communal versus individual goodness cuz it's actually important but this actually gets to um way deep in the story originally Michael, how did you decide to write a show about being good? Were you trying to be good and you thought this was giving your job the way to do it? Or were you interested by this question as a storyteller? Like what? This is a weird show. How did yeah. you get here?
1: Yeah. I mean, you can tell from the first 20 minutes of this podcast that 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 this is not the normal material that one might take to and try to turn into a half hour sitcom. But I. um,
2: Like what did somebody at Dartmouth do to you? exactly?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. I, these are just questions I've always found interesting and I knew very little about them except uh, in the most cursory sort of cocktail party way, right? So, but I always thought they were interesting and I've always keyed on aspects of daily life where a person that either I know or don't know, meaning either like a public figure I've never met or a person I'm driving past on the highway or any or, or a friend of mine, behaves in a way that said to me and to everyone around us that that person believes he or she is better than everybody else like that that's a particular kind of bugaboo for me i i cannot abide people who think they are that the rules don't apply to them it's it's always been a thing that i hated and uh, i'm an extreme rule follower by nature i always have been and i get made fun of for it a lot but what comes with rule following uh, besides a lifetime of ridicule from your <laughs> spouse and friends and family, is a, a a very, very low tolerance for people in big and small ways who say, in uh, in, in whatever way, oh, the rules don't apply to me, I don't have to follow the rules, I can do whatever I want, I'm special, I'm a special person, you guys have to wait in line, you have to have uh, make sure you have 12 items or fewer in the checkout lane. I don't, because I'm special and interesting. And that is a kind of behavior that is pervasive in America, at least in my lifetime. It it seems everywhere you look, you will find people in every scenario who simply behave in a way that indicates they think the rules don't apply to them. And it drives me up the wall, and it always has. And so the sort of impetus for this show was... What if someone's keeping score? Like it's a, it's kind of a fantasy of mine, um, that like that the that because the this is the a very boring revenge fantasy online cutters a hundred percent. That's exactly what it is. You're making a joke, <laughs> but that is exactly what it is. Because the nightmare for a person like me who's obsessed with rules is that it doesn't matter. Is that we're that it's um, that we're here on Earth as as uh, organic creatures milling around and bumping into each other and then at the end of the day at some point your cord is snipped and you return to organic matter on earth and nothing you actually did had any meaning uh, that you you cut the line and you cheated on your taxes and you treated people badly and it didn't matter like it, you just got away with it like that's people getting away with it is is really the the thing that i'm fighting against with this show because i the premise the entire premise of the show is every little tiny thing you did mattered it had a point value those points accrued and you gotta at the end of the day it was a video game you gotta score the top scorers get to you know and the bad bad everybody else and um and that to me is just a way to try to enact a post-life world that i hope exists in some way like i hope it matters i hope that the people who pull onto the shoulder of the freeway when there's heavy traffic and just whiz by everybody uh because they think they don't have to wait, the rules don't apply to them. I hope that it matters that they did that in some small way, and so that then you know you that's a it's not that complicated an idea. Unfortunately for me and for the rest of the writers on the show, actually getting to the point where you know what you're talking about is was that was a long walk. <laughs> like that's that's why it took us so long. It took me a year before I really felt like I could even write the pilot for the show because. I needed to know what I was talking about and I didn't. And I kind of still don't, but I know more now what I'm talking about than I did when I started.
2: But it seems like you got to a show where I'm curious if this was intellectual journey or just what you needed for the comedy that it turns out the point system is broken. Well, that how you actually rate any of this turns out to be to be very hard to tell. I mean, even when you're talking about the rule breakers, right? One interpretation is they think they're special and another is maybe they think these rules are bad and shouldn't apply to anybody.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that is intellectual journey. That's intellectual and creative journey because I invented this point system. And then I started doing the research into, you know, moral philosophy. And I was like, okay, well, this is sort of a consequentialist system, right? This is just like you have an action. It has a result positive or negative. It's a quantifiable result. And the sum total of your life is the sum total of all of those point values. And part of the premise of the show relies on the idea that this point system is absolute and final. And, 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 Over the course of the show, there have been a lot of moments where we talked about the points and it's sort of like they just are like it's not this isn't a they're not interpreted. They're just divined, Right. So as soon as I invented that system, which I thought was a sort of absolute for the sake of the show, an absolute sort of objective system, it was very clear that that system also sucks like there's no there's no way to do this that doesn't have its massive problems. And so the journey of the show for the characters has largely been about them trying to untangle the specific ways that the system they're in is bad and explaining to the audience why it's bad and trying to fix it. That's what this final season has been, has been them going, here's the problem with the point system. Here's why it's not effective in actually gauging a person's moral net worth. And here's a better system for how to go about it. And that the next episode, it doesn't air till January, but literally the next episode of the show is them trying to design a better system.
2: So Pam, something in that, which I think is intuitive to a lot of people, is this idea that when somebody else does something we don't like, or even something we do like, that they should bear responsibility for that. And if things were just, they would either get some points for doing good or lose some points for being bad. You wrote a paper that I I would not pretend to fully understand, but I thought was really interesting called, I Bet You Think This Blame Is About You, (laughs) where you said that there's something in that idea that doesn't sit right with you. Can you talk a bit about whether we should bear moral responsibility for our actions?
3: Oh, we definitely should bear moral responsibility for our actions. The the question is what we mean by bearing moral responsibility for our action. One thing that we mean sometimes is that you uh, sort of merit certain rewards or sanctions. That's the thing that I think is not really part of fully adult, human, ordinary interpersonal interactions. I think Sanctions and rewards are special, institutional kinds of kinds of things. Another thing we mean by bearing responsibility for your actions is something more like owning up to them in ordinary interpersonal relationships. That, I think, is very important. And the point of the paper, so the, the paper takes its title from the Carly Simon song, You're So Vain, I'll Bet You Think This Song Is About You. That song, you know, in... Verse after verse, you hear about uh, this womanizer and people have puzzled for decades now. Who is it? Who Who is it? And have puzzled also, how is this song not about this person? Uh, <laughs> I mean, for God's sake, he has a Learjet and a yacht. Like, it, it's clearly about him. And the point of that, that I get to in that paper is, no, it's about her. The song is about her. And to tie this back to our earlier conversation... If when you are confronted with your own moral failing, what seems most important to you is your own moral failing, as it would if you were the Dartmouth grad who's trying to do the <laughs> Olympic thing, right? Like, I have failed. Then you're you're missing something really important about your situation, namely that someone else has been wronged. And so, like Mike, when you are mad that somebody thinks they're special, which I... I would guess that, though, it might be gratifying to have them, you know, get in a car wreck when they try to do this. <laughs> I, I
1: don't want them to get into a car wreck. <laughs> I just want them to lose 18 you, points or something.
3: Like, like when they're running down the <laughs> shoulder, you so don't. So they get you, butt spiders oh, Okay,
1: That's okay, right. right. I don't okay. want, I, I okay. want no one to be horribly, unfairly, unjustly punished. I just want them to be justly punished. That's right, that's the, But
3: if you run down the side of the shoulder, maybe it would be like
1: Fiery death is not an appropriate no, I don't punishment mean for death. that.
3: Anyway, I think a lot of our fantasies are of the person coming to see what it's like to be the, the person they wronged. Right? Coming to acknowledge the situation. Yeah. Um and and so that and and that seems to me exactly what we want is we want people to see that. The moral failing is about the people who have, they have failed, the people they've wronged.
1: Yeah, you want them to feel it. You want them to know it and feel it. To and acknowledge it, yeah. Now, there's a, there's a flip side of this for me personally, uh, which is the David Foster Wallace um, uh, commencement address called This Is Water that he gave uh, uh, many years ago. And the point of that address is you're in a grocery store and a person like cuts in line or goes into the 12 items or fewer line and has 18 items or whatever, and you're sitting there thinking like, why can't this person is being bad, they're doing something wrong, I want them to feel bad for what they're doing, and they don't seem to feel bad. His thing, which is very humanistic, was... You don't know what that person is going through. maybe that woman who cut in front of you or has eighteen items or whatever has a sick kid at home or a sick father and is rushing because she's had a long day. she worked for fourteen hours and and she now has to get home and like help her um, terminally ill father you know we take his medicine or something. He's asking you to in a sort of like almost like endlessly empathetic way, imagine. Reasons to explain other people's bad behavior, mm-hmm. and it's a very noble idea, right? It's and and it's it's applicable in many occasions because the truth is we don't know what anyone else is going through when in those situations. But it's the, also d- mismanners <laughs> idea, and <now laughs> I'm right. totally serious. Yeah, That's her main idea, <laughs> right? And and but but the problem is is that I I can't help but feel uh, here in 2019 as you look around the world uh, and observe behaviors uh, by many people unpowerful people and also very powerful people, it's very difficult to do that because Mm -hmm. it's very hard to believe that some of the behavior being exhibited has any kind of um, impetus behind it or any cause behind it other than pure self-interest. And I fear that if you take, I think it's good to have that is sort of, to start from that point of view of empathy and of, of like, I don't know what's happening in your life and there might be a good reason for you doing what you're doing and cutting this corner. But the problem is, is that if you do that for everyone, you end up just getting, being walked all over. Mm-hmm. And this is actually one of the things that Pam, Pam came and talked to us this year. We have a character on the show this year named Brent, who was a very bad dude, very selfish, um, extremely unconcerned with other people. And we sort of talked through... Um, with this character we talked through with Pam, like, why exactly is it wrong to take the point of view that Wallace is espousing, which is, well, maybe there's things in his life that that he that happened to him that are causing him to do this or whatever. What why is it why is that wrong? Because that's Cheedy's point of view. Cheaty's point of view is always like uh, the character Cheedy on the show. His point of view is always, well, we can break through. Let's keep working, let's keep trying, let's find the key to unlock him. And I believe that he can be better or whatever. So and we wanted this character Simone to take a different point of view. She's a scientist, and her point of view was like, you know, uh, look, if you do a science experiment a thousand times and get the same result every time, you you bail on the experiment. It's a failed experiment. This guy's a failed experiment. We've tried a thousand times to make him uh, to let him be part of our group, and he just keeps screwing up. And so we were like, well, what's what is the, what's at the core of that? And Pam walked us through this really interesting argument, which is if you constantly take Chidi's position and you constantly act purely from empathy, you're basically sending the message that it's okay for him to treat you like that. That it's like it, it, that whatever, the, whatever the melange of, of stuff is that's inside him um, that you're trying to untangle, you're also sending the message uh, it's okay, you can keep treating me like this. And it's not, at some point you have to say, it's not okay that you behave this way. It's not okay to treat me like this. And so Simone espoused that theory in the in the seventh episode of the season. And I think it's a really kind of powerful moment when she's just like, look, you you ha- you are an individual and you can't allow other people to treat you badly your whole life. It's just not okay to send the message that other people are allowed to act like this.
2: There are certain ideas that maybe are good or even correct ideas to hold that would be very difficult ideas to build a society out of. And so we're talking here a little bit about responsibility. When my son is kind of being tough for kids, you're often like, he's probably hungry. He needs a nap. <laughs> you you will go pretty far to explain to your point, like why they're going in with 18 items into the 15 item checkout line. And then people get a bit older and we stop doing that. Right. As long as you're able to truly verbalize or rationalize at the very least why you're doing things. We're willing to put a lot of blame on your responsibility on you for what you're doing. But I don't know, my experience of people is that we're pretty limited. People differ in their level of impulse control and their level of emotional intelligence and what they see around them and how well they read other people's feelings. And so it often seems to me that we're caught in this way. I'm not a huge believer in free will as I think a at least in the range that people tend to ascribe to it, between circumstance and genetics, a lot more of what we do, I think, is shaped around us or for us than we like to admit. On the, and on the other hand, it's very hard to build a society where you don't ask people to be responsible for their actions. But the, the, the twist of that there, right, like, which I think is in that seventh episode of the show, is that what it might be rational to, the moral way to treat people may not be a way you can build a collective out of people.
3: So, th- so that's a really um, interesting thought, and it and it highlights um, a difference between the uh, Aristotelian virtue theory, the consequentialism, the Kantianism that Chidi likes, on the one side, and on the other side, the contractualism that became important in the second season, and then Chidi. Still had the book with him
2: uh, at <laughs> last episode. Can you just say a word on what contractualism is and the and and the book because people mm-hmm. may not be as familiar with the uh, you.
1: Oh, wait, are you are you telling me that everyone in America isn't intimately familiar with the theory of contractualism? Because I strongly disagree.
2: Deontological etc.
3: <laughs> so uh, contractualism is a view that c- currently the um, statement of it I think is coming from uh, T.M. Scanlon at Harvard. And it has its roots in social contract theory. So it has its roots in Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and uh, in the 20th century, John Rawls, which is a political theory, but Scanlon has made that political theory into a moral theory. And unlike the other theories I mentioned, the Aristotelian and consequentialism, uh, it's a minimum theory. So coming from the, the social contract liberal political views, what was it? One thing that was important about those political views is that they were, as Rawls puts it, neutral with respect to the conception of the good. So the problem there is how do you get a pluralistic society to live peacefully together? And the way you do that is not by saying, here's the one true religion or here's the one true morality or here's the one true human ideal. Everybody sign on. Instead what you do is look for the, the minimal system of rules that we could all live respectfully together under. That's how contractualism characterizes morality. The morality of right and wrong is the minimum system of rules that we could respectfully live together under. And what's interesting about the you think you're special problems, if that's what's bothering you is, is these cases in which people make exceptions for themselves, that's exactly what contractualism puts at the center of of morality. One of my classmates uh, in graduate school, Aaron James, who's now at Irvine, has a book called "Assholes: A Theory," <laughs> which is a kind of popularization <laughs> of contractualism. Um, and he, you know, he defines an asshole as exactly that person who thinks thinks he's special. But like, notice the the person who cuts in line on the freeway, say, or, you know, goes around on the shoulder the actual consequences that they, I mean, maybe they make me two seconds later to, my, to where I'm going, you know, <laughs> maybe 10 seconds later. So, so, so the, the harm they do to me is all out of proportion with how, how much they've disrespected me, right? Right. And the, So the, the disrespect matters, so it, it's exactly that. You aren't living up to the system we've all signed on to to, to make life work together. And if that's how you're thinking of it is that we need a system that we can all sign on to, to make life work together. And it's this minimum thing, not this maximal thing. Then the demands of morality become more like the demands of parenting or the demands of being a police officer, where the demands of being a parent or a police officer don't shrink to fit the abilities of the people in the role. Right. So it's not that, oh, if I'm having a a bad day as a police officer, that means that the civilians, you know, the, the the community that I'm serving needs to give me a, you know, a pass. Right. No, I have certain demands of being in this role. If I'm a parent, I have certain demands of being in the role that are grounded in the needs of the people I'm I'm serving. And and so if you think of morality in this minimum way, the moral demands are more like that. They're not going to. So so. You know, we can understand that people have a bad day and that they're doing, you know, doing uh, under certain stresses. Um, in fact, probably the thing we would contract would write would have that written in it, right. so to speak, <laughs> right. but um, but the fact that somebody is an entrenched chauvinist say, and so like you really can't ex- can't seriously expect that person to suddenly turn out to be respectful. That doesn't make it yeah, less respectful.
1: You don't get a pass. For, you don't you get a know, pass for that. Pam described contractualism to me the first time we met is, is like almost like trench warfare, like World War I trench warfare, where <laughs> the two sides have been in a stalemate forever.
2: It was Westphalia. And it
1: was Westphalia. That's right. <laughs> and then at a certain point, it's like, all right, we're all going to die unless we can figure out some kind of way to to end this. And so they all get together and everybody gets a vote. And they just start pitching rules for their new society. They're going to start right there in the middle of the forest, and anybody can veto any rule, right? So, in that in that scenario, uh, they we're assuming they're all reasonable people. There are no well, they're like crucially, they're equally powerful, they're equally powerful and reasonable people, right? So, basically, what that means is if you're sitting around and starting a society, and someone goes like, "Hey, here's a rule." I think that dentists named Gary who drive white Audis should be allowed to pull onto the shoulder of the 101 and zip past everybody when there's heavy traffic. Then everyone else would go like, "Well, that's obviously not an okay rule because you're the only dentist named Gary who drives a white Audi." And so, if you think if you start thinking of it that way, you you realize very quickly that if everybody can veto any rule that is unreasonable, you eliminate all of this terrible behavior. And like Pam is saying, you might have a rule in there that says like, you can only have 12 items or fewer in the checkout line at the grocery store. But let's add a corollary rule here, and that corollary rule will say like, if you're taking care of a sick elderly uh, parent who's uh, terminally ill and you need to rush home to get him or her that the medicine they desperately need, or else they'll have a terrible night and maybe die, then you can go into that lane if it's faster. If you have fifteen items, I think reasonable people would all go, okay, yeah, fine. In that scenario, great. And now we've taken care of those that that and empathy that we're all hoping to achieve because we've codified it in the in the actual rules for the society. So you know, when Pam explained this to me. I immediately was like, yes, this is what I'm after because the point of the show was going to be a small group of people who are all in a similar situation for very different reasons and their path to sort of salvation, however you want to define salvation, was going to be through the bonds that they made with each other and not through attaining some kind of abstract concept of good. And they were all going to help each other. That was the key to it. I mean, that's the key to most TV shows, right? Is the cast becomes a little family and they all help each other and they all find things in each other that they don't have in themselves. But in this case, it was a very specific thing they were finding in each other, which was a path to moral improvement. And so contractualism immediately became the sort of central spine of the show. And it's actually in season one, it's when it started, um, Chidi gave Eleanor What We Owe to Each Other, which is Scanlan's book. And it's, it will, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but it will play a key role all the way until the very end.
2: The Ezra Klein Show will be back after a short break.
0: There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
2: It seems to me that when we talk about morality this way, we end up having a word that can mean a bunch of different things. This idea of, because my background is in politics, the idea of the rules you would need to build a workable, decent society and the rules you want to follow or the approach you want to take to being a good person. I recently had Peter Singer on the show, who, um, Mike, I know you wrote the forward to the new edition of A Life You Can Save, The Life You Can Save. And something I found really striking about that book is it has it has a version of both of these ideas in it. So the initial thought experiment, what do you do if you're walking by the pond and you see a child drowning and you're in your nicest suit? If you just keep following the logic of that, and it is powerful logic, Mm -hmm. it never stops. And he basically admits that. It doesn't stop until you're essentially risking your own life or that of your families to save others. And on the other hand, at some point, he basically makes a tactical concession and says, well, look, if everybody making a a lot of money, would just donate 5% of it, the world would be a lot better place, we wouldn't have extreme poverty, so at least maybe we can all agree on that rule. And when I had him on the show, I was trying to get him to to distinguish between this a little bit, and I think for tactical reasons, he was a little loath to do so, right? That if you're, you're going to turn people off if you tell them the only way to be decent is to basically annihilate their self and their partiality to those closest to them to, to, to be a good person, but nevertheless these seemed like very different questions to me this question of what do you need to just be a participant in a good participant in a community and what does it actually mean to be living a good life um that we're somehow trying to answer in the same words yeah i mean that is the uh,
1: singer is fascinating to me and um i wrote the forward to that to the 10th anniversary edition of that and the the point of the forward is basically to say that we, when you read this book you're going to read a lot of insane things, right? You're going to read a story about a guy who um, calculated that the odds of dying from only having one kidney are one in 4,000. And then he said, well, that means if I don't give away one of my kidneys to someone who needs it, that I'm valuing my own life 4,000 times greater than the life of a random stranger who's not me. And that's absurd. And he went into a hospital and said, I want to give away a kidney. And the, the hospital said to whom? And he said, I don't know, whoever needs it. And they had no protocol for this. The hospital had never <laughs> experienced a person who wanted to give a kidney to someone like it was to anyone, right? <laughs> and um and the the point of the forward that I wrote was, you're going to read that story and you're going to have a lot of feelings. I think um it's not just thoughts with Singer. I I, I think the thing that's so interesting about Singer is. His writing causes me to have feelings that I don't have when I read other moral philosophy. Because the feelings you have are things like shame and embarrassment and um, and fear. Uh, like, is this the only way to be a good person? I have to walk into a hospital tomorrow and offer up a kidney? Like, uh, that's a terrifying idea, right? But the reason that I really like him and the reason that I think he serves a really valuable um uh it does a really valuable thing in our society is he shakes you out of complacency like you it's very easy to get complacent i think in america even if you're living a life of um any life of even relative comfort in america puts you at the very top of the heap right like uh, compared to people in the world and um it's very easy to get complacent. If you have an air conditioner and a and a TV and electricity and clean water, you're in the, you know, the top five percent of comfort of all human beings on earth. And it's so it's very easy to kind Say of nothing of all human beings in history. That's right. Yes. Um in fact one of the things I wrote about was like, you know, if you are in that situation right now in America where you have a roof over your head, air conditioning, um, a stove, a refrigerator, clean water, um, electricity cable tv whatever the the sort of things we think of as basic utilities your life is better than louis couture's like you're by far like louis Louis couture's that if you ever go to versailles my wife and i went to versailles for our 10th anniversary and uh it's you know it's obviously an insane thing to walk through that that building but then you're like well yeah they had no running water and everything was Stunk, and everybody had terrible bo because there wasn't we <laughs> didn't have any deodorant, right? And it's like there there are aspects of the daily life in America, even at a moderate income level, that that make you better. Your life is better than kings and queens from years past, right? So, singer's purpose to me is to constantly shake you out of complacency and to remind you that people in other parts of the world are not less valuable intrinsically than people that are next door to you. That's an incredibly valuable service he's providing, I think. And you don't have to give up a kidney to live by the tenets of Peter Singer's writing, I don't think. I think you just have to, in my mind, you have to just internalize what he's saying and and understand the truth of it. And it, like you said, it's very compelling. It's incredibly compelling writing to me. And it forces you out of this ability that you have that's, that's provided to us here in America in 2019 to utterly forget about the rest of the world. Um, his particular philosophy is not my particular philosophy, I would say. But I, I really enjoy reading what he writes because it constantly shifts and changes my outlook on the world in a way that I would not otherwise maybe have be shifted or changed.
3: So interestingly, when I teach Scanlon's contractualism, the key quote from the original 1982 article that he wrote about it is about Peter Singer. Really? Yeah, and, and exactly this point about how it makes you have feelings, as you just put. So the quote is something like, when I read Peter Singer's article about famine, in addition to the thought about how much good I could do, to people in these countries, uh, there's the further seemingly distinct thought that it would be wrong not to aid them when I could do so at so little cost to myself. So in addition to the thought about how much good I could do, that's the utilitarian thought, Scanlon says, I have this further seemingly distinct thought or feeling that that it would be wrong. And, And then Scanlon, that's the starting point for his reflections about what is that distinct thought? It's not just, that I could do more good. There's something else there. And then what he lands on is this contractualism. What he lands on is this claim about community or about living together on minimally respectful terms, which then, as Ezra was pointing out, gets um, complicated by the idea of a global community. It's like we're not built for that scale (laughs) to, to, to take in Um, ethically.
1: What I'm hearing from you is that I'm as good a philosopher as Tim Scanlon. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. That's what (laughs) I took
2: from that. (laughs) (laughs) On Singer, something that I find it's almost it's not appealing that I find seductive about his philosophy is that maybe it's just incredibly hard to be actually a good person. There's something, and he did not like this analogy, so when I say this, um, I want to note that he pushed back on it, I think, in convincing (laughs) ways um, and going too far. But something that I I heard in him is that in religious traditions, I think we have an idea of submission or devotion or or life of discipleship, right? That you would give up of yourself in a very deep way to this outside force and the, the, the rules of the outside force, what the outside force is asking you to merit the gift of existence, you have to give up almost everything back to, 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 to be good enough to deserve it. I mean, obviously most people who follow religions don't do that, but I think we're all often inspired by the few people who do, the the Mother Teresas of the world. And I think that usually when we talk outside of that context, we wanna have a version of being a good person that's pretty easy to do. Like, don't, as has been the theme of this show, like, you know, don't go into the fast checkout lane. If you've got 18 items, how fucking dare you? And then beyond that, <laughs> Can you just like give a little bit of money to charity, be good to your family, you know, try to buy stuff from Whole Foods, you know, whatever the set of things is that makes you feel in relative terms, given your own society, like you're doing an okay job. And what I find interesting and at least challenging about his philosophy is maybe not. Maybe that's not nearly enough. Maybe actually being good is really tough. In the show, there's sort of a sing like there's a character who takes this logic all the way, um, Doug Forseth. And the show sort of looks at him uh, as a little bit of an object of fun. Like if you, if you went all the way with it, you'd end up in this ridiculous spot where you'd spend all day picking snails up off the ground. So you can certainly go too far. But on the other hand, I would just wonder if the reality is, if you want to be able to say that you're really trying to be a good person, and I recognize that trying is controversial in this terminology, <laughs> um, you have to work really hard, that it's not going to be easy, that it's going to be a constant, difficult you know, that you'll end up maybe not as ridiculous as Doug Forsythe or indecisive as Cheedy, but you will end up in a place where living a normal life under the rules of your society just really isn't that possible.
1: Yeah, that is the essence of what the show's trying to talk about, really. Is we've shown. So, Doug Forsett was a guy who, when he was like 17, he got really stoned and uh on, he took a bunch of mushrooms and he uh somehow had some weird vision portal into the truth of the universe and guessed how the point system works and guessed 92 percent of the whole thing and and so he then spent the rest of his life trying to just earn points right because he was like i'm gonna be judged and i'm gonna i have to do every uh, possible good thing i can do so we moved to a a little tiny house off the grid, and he um, he distills his own water, uh, and he helps snails when they're injured, and he he's basically become the criticism of this and consequentialist philosophies. Uh, the criticism of consequentialist philosophy is called a happiness pump. He becomes a he's not a he's not a he's barely a person. He wakes up every day and just tries to do his most the most good he can do for every. Thing everybody else and everything else in order to sort of do them earn the most points, um, the good most goodness points, and he's not living a good life, right? It's not he's not happy. He's not a happy person. He's serving a master, and the master is the point system or the sort of idea of goodness. And then we've also shown Chidi, who's the ex- all the way on the opposite end of the spectrum, who's an extreme uh, deontological uh, disciple, is extreme Kantian, who is so obsessed with the idea that there are rules that you can follow that will lead you to be a perfect person, uh, that there are answers that you can get to any question, that he's utterly paralyzed with indecision, can never do anything, drives everybody crazy, it takes him 53 minutes to order off a menu because he has to make a moral calculation of the carbon footprint of every you know dish and the what would be better, X, Y, or Z, and then once you solve that, you have to go back and look at A, B, and C again, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the show is sort of aiming at this idea that if you serve any of these masters too fully and too completely, you're going to live a sad life. You're not going to do what Aristotle talked about, which was essentially flourishing. You're not going to flourish as a person because you will spend all of your time simply trying to like... Figure out the puzzle instead of just living your life, and the show ends up being pretty Aristotelian. I think um, we we have landed after four years in this place where we have felt like the attempt to be good, the attempt to achieve virtue, the idea of like pursuing good, is more important than whether you like won the race. Because the people who, that we've shown who have won the race, which is to say have the most maximally fulfilled whatever philosophy they particularly espouse or believe in, those people are miserable. (laughs) They're just miserable people. And they end up, you know, both ends of the spectrum, consequentialist and deontological, they end up the same amount of miserable, essentially. So, you know, the idea of, like, giving up your kidney, right, because your life is not 4,000 times more valuable than some random other person's life. Well, yeah, okay, that might be true. On the other hand... Giving up a kidney is an enormous thing to do. It's a major surgery. And also, by the way, in my case, let's say, um, I'll say out of slightly out of selfishness to defend myself about why I haven't given up a kidney, I've got two kids and maybe one day my kids will need a kidney. And if I gave up my kidney to a random person when I was 44 years old and then when my son was turned 23, he needed a kidney and I was a perfect kidney match. Well, man, would that stink. And I know that that's unlikely. Of course it's unlikely, and it might be selfish of me to think that way. But the idea of, like, if you become Doug Forsett, if you become this sort of singer uh, ideal of how to effectively, altruistically serve the rest of the world, that's not a flourishing life, I don't think. I think it ends up meaning that you wake up every day and you make one move you get out of bed and you turn on the hot water to take a shower and your first 52 thoughts are like, I can't use too much gas to heat this water and because that's bad and it's using electricity and the carbon footprint of the energy that's being used. And it's you end up just, you just like, you're frozen. You're just a frozen being in time who's not actually, instead of just taking a three minute hot shower and getting dressed and going to work and trying to live a good life, your, your every action is overly scrutinized and, um, by yourself. And I just can't live that way.
2: Let me push you on this just a little bit because, okay, uh,
1: fine. I'll give up my kidney.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Then we're done. So you met Dylan Matthews, who's my colleague. Um, and he's given a kidney to a stranger and because he did it, uh, it kind of like spread through my newsroom and Herman Lopez, who's another of our writers did it. And, both of them would say it's one of the most meaningful events of their lives. That in doing that, that far from being something that in happening, it kept them from flourishing, it made them feel miserable. For both of them, you know, having spoken to them about it, and uh, and I should say I'm sitting here with my two kidney privilege, so I'm speaking <laughs> not from not from experience, but as a as a terrible person walking around with too many kidneys. But both of them would say it was a beautiful experience that has enriched their lives. That um that maybe this idea that if you live in these ways, it will lead to you being a kind of narrow and cramped uh, happiness pump, maybe that's actually a rationalization keeping us from living more in these ways. And in fact, and this is part of why I, I make the religion analogy, that living with more submission to rules that are bigger than you and giving something up for them can actually help, uh, help add and generate meaning in our life. I don't, I don't doubt it.
1: I did not mean to say that any of these acts itself is unmeaningful. I think any of these acts, it can be incredibly, of course, obviously incredibly meaningful. I don't doubt that that action, um, uh, brought incredible sort of th- like satisfaction or, Something approaching almost like moral beauty into the lives of the people who do it. I, of course, it did. They wouldn't do it if uh, no one would do it. If if even one person gave a kidney to a stranger and then went, "Whoa, guys, this was awful. Don't do this." Like, <laughs> like, wave their hands and <laughs> yeah, this, this would
2: be an easy one to poison the well. on. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. Like uh, it would. Uh, of course, it does. Like I, I didn't mean to imply that any individual act would be bad or something. Uh, I meant to say that if you become subservient to a a particular way of trying to achieve sort of moral perfection, the end of that road, along the road to that um, end, you will experience, I have no doubt, incredible moments of power and beauty and meaningfulness and feeling and whatever else. But at the end of that road, I think, lies madness. And that's why the show ends up being Aristotelian, I think, because the argument that we're making is the attempt is the meaningful thing. The sort of knowledge that it's important, that it's something you need to do, and the action of practicing in whatever way you want to practice, whether it's consequentialist or deontological or anything else, um, the act of practicing and doing is more important than achieving the victory of getting to the end and winning. I think that's the thing this show is trying to say. So the actions themselves, like you can donate a kidney whether you're if you're a Kantian, you might donate a kidney right because you might say like i've decided that the rule for uh, how to live in society in a world where people have renal failure is that everyone should we have two kidneys we should all give up a kidney that's an easy rule to follow it makes moral sense you don't need to be of one discipline or another to do that thing i just mean that if you take that to the nth degree in any direction you're in trouble, I think. And so the we're trying to say on the show that what actually matters is the belief that it matters. that's that's what matters is thinking that your actions matter and that you should try to do the best ones you can do. Is that uh, how did I do, Pam? <laughs> Pam, what do you think?
3: It, it's so I have lots of thoughts. Uh, and uh, Pam has
1: been like twitching in her seat next to me. <laughs> For like, the, I've been talking for. Yeah, like there's 15 been minutes. great. I'm yeah.
2: watching you guys on Skype, and there's been great body language from this whole. She's portion. so annoyed right now. She's, no, uh, she's... I'm just
3: trying to keep all my thoughts together, and they're they're running in different directions. There's a
2: wonderful head tilt at one point in it. it kind of like the yeah. head went 15 degrees over to the right. Can I tell a quick story yeah. before Pam does this? When Pam
1: was 11, how old were you when your dad gave you?
3: I, I, I was in like eighth grade, whatever. I you, thought
1: it was younger than that. Uh, gave you Montaigne's essays, right?
3: No, no, Descartes' Meditations. Oh,
1: Descartes' Meditations. When she was like 11 and she formed like a book group on her bus <laughs> where they they on their way to like sixth grade discussed Descartes' <laughs> <laughs> writings, yeah. uh, so it's hilarious. The point of this is only to say it's hilarious that we're on this podcast and I'm sitting here <laughs> talking a lot about philosophy
2: while Pam is twitching <laughs> in her seat next to me.
3: <laughs> um,
2: so then let's turn the mic, turn the mic to Pam.
3: So what you were just saying seemed to me to come back to what we, the argument we started with about trying. But let me come at it from the other end. Uh, so, so one thing, especially that's been standing out to me about the show recently is the way the characters find themselves in a world that is not making sense to them and is not working. And they're trying to figure out, like the system isn't working. And that might be one reason the show is resonating with people. I I think that's a a way that people are feeling now, whether it's politics or climate or what have you, that the systems that we're in are causing us stress. and the show's message of reach out to the people around you, do your best, put in effort, like that's a really terrific and, I think, energizing message. Um, So so nothing that I say about trying is to take any of that (laughs) back. Ezra, when you were talking about Singer and the idea that what it might take to be a good person would be to make all of these sacrifices, I think what you said is it might just be super hard. It might just be like nearly impossible to be a good person. The direction I'm inclined to go is, is it, it, maybe this is my my Catholic upbringing or something, but the direction I'm inclined to go is, yeah, the fact that I'm not a good person is one of the most boring facts that there is, right? <laughs> like that that is not news to anybody. I, why is that an important idea? You know, as opposed to, there are people who are being wronged, or there are people who don't have water, or there are people, right, so that the, the, I mean, this is again this the, I, I'll bet you think it's about you issue, but, mm-hmm. you know. It,
2: That's a great distinction.
3: That it's, not, it's not about me, it's not about whether I'm good or bad. So you were saying, uh, which seemed correct to me, that um, if you follow any of these theories out to their extreme, and then devote yourself wholly to them as you would to a, a religion, that, that you, you'll you end up you know, being unhappy. And I, it seemed to me that you were doing a better job of making the point I was trying to make at the beginning when I said, if you start thinking you have it all figured out, and you're just going to put effort in to bring that about, your point is you're, you're going to be unhappy. And my point would have been, that's not going to end up, making you a better person. You're just going to be a kind of fanatic of one or another sorts. Whereas if you're open to, you know, if if you're open to learning about your situation and the people around you and kind of finding your way, then I think that lines up better with where the show is going, which is connect to other people and try to find a way forward.
2: But let me ask you about the, the singer part of that, because I take your point that to phrase that in terms of am I being a good person is a um, it's maybe called a very individualistic way to phrase it. But but the way he phrases it is in terms of our obligations to others, right? Not the scam on what we owe each other, but to, but the singer, there's a moral obligation to save the child drowning in the pond. There's no difference if the child's drowning in front of you or, he's, or she is dying from malaria 3,000 or 5,000 miles from you. And you can do a tremendous amount. So maybe it... It may not be a, um, an unusual fact about people that they're not doing enough, but what for you, if anything for you, what offers a bind a boundary principle on how much you are obligated to do? As somebody who thinks all the time about what it means to live ethically, to thinks about moral philosophy deeply, what are the constraining principles that let you, if you do live a any semblance of a of a normal, non extreme life?
3: Uh, so, I, yeah, I don't have a boundary principle. Like, I, I I suspect Singer might be correct that we're all failing horribly in our obligations to people in distant places. That's what I mean when I say this is a completely boring fact about me. <laughs> you know that I'm failing all the time. This is a set of thoughts I've just recently been trying to work out in uh, the the last chapter of a book I wrote about, it's a very academic book about a particular article, but in the last chapter, trying to think about the fact that the sorts of emotions and attitudes and, and reactions that constitute our ordinary interpersonal relationships, which are crucial to us, operate at a somewhat different scale, is what I said before, than the abstract Obligations that we might have to people at a great distance from us. I mean, so if you take veganism would be one example, or um, feminism is is a is another example. Things where people's convictions about what is wrong, you know, what is wronging, say women, or uh, you know, doing horrible things to animals, their, their intellectual convictions and beliefs about that often have to run ahead of their emotional reactions. If I were to have the emotional and interpersonal reactions that I think would be actually justified by factory farming, I'm going to quickly alienate all kinds of people around me. I'm going to become a kind of, like a weird museum piece (laughs) of, of of a human being. Um, so welcome, welcome to my podcast. <laughs> this,
2: this is what I've become, basically. <laughs>
3: so it seems to me that there's this interaction between the attitudes and, and emotions, which which are not subject to our immediate voluntary control, but the the actions and emotions that sort of constitute our culture and our relationships and the principles that we can reason to about what people deserve and, and, and what, what would be a decent way to, to treat sentient creatures. And that those two things don't march in step. And the fact that they don't march in step sort of leaves us in the state where, that we find ourselves in, where, um, where our ordinary lives are maybe aspiring to push towards our ideals, but can't get there right away.
2: The Ezra Klein Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. One thing that was super interesting to me, and I, I apologize for framing so much within this conversation with Singer, but it's very fresh in my head and was provocative. But I think it actually brings us back both into this conversation and the show in a fascinating way. So I was talking with him about this very issue. And... People who have listened to the show have heard this too many times, but I use it in part because I prefer to use my own moral journey than to criticize other people's. Um, I believed everything I believe now about factory farming and animal pain and all the rest of it for years before I went vegetarian and then before I went vegan. And I think a lot about what was happening in me during that period when I had these same moral intuitions, but I wasn't acting on them. And I asked him, for someone who offers such simple thought experiments and for somebody who's been working on things like animal liberation for so long, How do you understand that moment in moral reasoning where people are disconnected from what their intuitions already are? Not the things you have to convince somebody they're doing something wrong, but they know it. They just let go of it. And he said to me that he bets, and he was right about this, that what changed for me was something in my collective environment um, that, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but that we, a lot of our moral reasoning is social. Um The intuitions that we will end up connecting to and end up choosing to see their validity and reality around us, it is shaped by what the people around us choose to see and in my case, my wife took this path a little bit earlier than I did, and that helped me sort of take it myself but it it created this very interesting question for me where maybe the most important issue is not like am I a good person but to be a good person, are we a good people, right? That the most effective thing you can actually do is change or begin to change or begin to shift and influence what the collective is willing to see within its own moral intuitions. Because just as it's, I think, largely a myth that we reason as individually as we believe we do, we reason very collectively, we reason within groups, that that our moral reasoning is collective and social and For moral intuitions to matter, for most people, for most personality types, it has to happen within a social context where it is not incredibly uncomfortable for those moral intuitions to matter. This is 100% the
1: point of this show, I think. When the characters on the show meet Doug Forsett as a grown man, he is living alone in a tiny house out in the middle of rural Canada. And he has sort of voluntarily exiled himself because he is so terrified about negatively impacting other people, uh, that he's made the calculation that the best way to have a minimal impact on other people is to live alone. When Chidi is shown at, in flashbacks uh, in his life as a extreme Kantian, he's usually shown essentially driving other people out of his life. He, dr- he makes his, all of his girlfriends so miserable that they all leave him <laughs> and he has one friend that he has had since he was a kid and his friend is driven crazy by him. And his friend is clearly only his friend because they have formed a bond when they were like seven years old. And, um, Eleanor, uh, her main problem was selfishness, uh, Bell's character, her main problem was selfishness. And she adopted a kind of personal philosophy. And the philosophy was, I don't owe you anything and you don't owe me anything. And she lived her entire life as thinking like, this is, this works for everybody because I'm, I'm a lone wolf and I don't, care to um, interact with other people. And it's great because I don't, if I don't promise them anything, they expect nothing of me and everybody wins because they're not going to be disappointed by me and I don't have to be annoyed by them. All of the characters on the show, even Tahani, Tahani was a very social person, but all of her social interactions were transactional. She was um, she was throwing fundraisers and she was hanging out with celebrities not because she actually cared about them or cared about how they made her change her worldview or she theirs, but because she could gain social status and kind of social capital by... Um, by hanging out with them. So the, the this is the entire journey of the show, is this exact thing you're talking about, right? It's like the path to improving or to like seeing the world more fully always goes through other people. It doesn't matter who you are. There's no person who can individualistically, like Dr. Manhattan, go to Mars and just uh, sit there and observe the world uh, and understand the world. It's only through interactions with other people that our, Um, worldviews can shift and change, and we can kind of, um, I mean, you only have to look as far as any one of hundreds of stories of, let's say, a white supremacist who um, was approached by an African-American journalist to say, like, let's talk about the world. And then six months later, or a year later, or 10 years later, The white supremacist is like, you know, I, it turns out I'd never met a black person before. And that's why I had the views of them that I had. Like it's so common and so obvious in a way um, that it's the people around us, I think, who help us and change our worldviews for the better uh, in any number of hundreds of different ways in big and small. So I, yes, I think that's a hundred percent true. I think that the, you can have a belief for a long time and not act on it. And by the way, I'm exactly like you. I had I believed very strongly in animal cruelty as a as a horrible sin of the modern world, and then it was about eight years ago that I finally was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. I just can't eat meat. I can't justify it. It's all I know exactly what it's doing. I I would rant and rave about the environmental impact of beef uh, and cattle farming, and I was eating steak once a week or whatever. And finally, I was like, okay, I'm done. And the reason I was done is because of books I read and people I talked to and people who were like, yeah, I do it and it's easy and here's how you do it and whatever. And it was just a, it hit some kind of critical mass of the people around me changing, giving me almost like the courage, I would say, to just take the step across the line that I knew I wanted to step across for a really long time. So that is I, you, that is really, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but that's 100% the message of the show, I think.
2: Pam, I'm curious if you have thoughts on what it means to take seriously that we morally reason collectively. It, it, it seems in some of these questions where it almost seems to offer, I don't want to call it an out, but at least a different frame on some of these questions where you're asking about an individual decision that might uh, end up actually being alienating if you make it to your, to your group or collective. And then in terms of if you're being a bit more consequentialist about things, maybe that's actually not a good decision to make if you're going to push people away as opposed to be able to be there with them and be able to be kind of part of a part of a constructive and healthy moral social process.
3: Right. This is the part that is sort of a new area for me to be exploring. But my thinking was in the first instance not about what does it take to motivate an individual to make a change, like to become a a vegan or or something like that. But rather for somebody who has that conviction, what is it like for that person to let that conviction inform their interactions with others in the way that a more socially accepted conviction would, right? So in Los Angeles, it is standard, at least among some of us, to be completely indignant about the guy who drives down the side of the the, uh, shoulder to, to, to pass everybody. That kind of indignation, if I were to express it about other things that I think are of roughly similar seriousness would just alienate me from people, people around me, right? Would, would, so, so having that, the same reactions to certain kinds of not widely recognized norms doesn't seem socially apt to, to do that. But just letting it go doesn't seem apt either. So, so like your friends who are convincing you, oh, here's how you'd become a vegetarian. Um, what they're typically saying is, yeah, I've done it and it's a good thing to do. And here's how, here's how you do it. Not your, uh, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. You're how, right? yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the same kind of confrontation that you might encounter um, if you. You know, were to do something that was much more, much less, uh, cutting edge, say. Um,
1: but there's another problem with this, right? Because you, what you're talking about, Ezra, is how we collectively morally reason, and that there's a rubber meets the road problem. And there, to me, and you see it all the time, which is. There is nothing more painful for people, uh, for many people, than to admit that they are doing something wrong. It's incredibly difficult, even in a tiny way. Like if you point out a small action that you think is wrong to another person, they dig in, they get defensive, they often double down, they have a very, very negative reaction. They, they get, they explain, no, no, well, you don't understand. Like because I, I, yeah, I pulled into onto the shoulder of the freeway, but it's only because. 30 seconds earlier, this other guy cut me off. And then he did like, and it's like you, you're, they can't, it's just really hard for people. People do not ever like to admit that they blew it. And this is another thing the show talks about a lot is like, it's a journey to get to the point where you feel okay. Just going like, oh man, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I blew it. That's my fault. I take responsibility for my actions and I will try to do better next time. I once tried to boil down, the questions the show was asking to four questions as a thought experiment and the four questions i ended up saying like this is what the show is asking or or wants people to ask right it's what am i doing why am i doing it is there something i could be doing that's better and if so what if and and we sort of got to the point as a, a writing staff that we were like that's if if there's some little packet of material that viewers could take away from the show, it would be that we would get them to ask those four questions. And inherent in asking people to ask those four questions is the ability to admit that what they're doing, the first question, can be answered in the third question, is there, is there something else I could be doing that's better, by saying like, oh yeah, I'm um, screwing up. And it's it's remarkably hard, you see this all the time everywhere, uh, especially in in politics. No one politician ever admits that they did something wrong, ever, for any reason, Um, unless they're Michael Bloomberg and they're suddenly running for president and they endorse stop and frisk and they're suddenly like have to talk to a large number of African-American voters (laughs) and beg for their votes. But other than that, they never just go like, hey, we made this decision and it turns out it was a bad decision and we're sorry and we're gonna make a different one and we'll try to be better uh, the next time we make a decision the vulnerability i think of of admitting wrong uh admitting that you blew it is very 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 hard i mean i find it hard in my own life and i've been thinking about essentially nothing but this for the last half decade so i understand why it's hard but it's it's to me it's one of the main barriers that people have between where they are and and a sort of improved version of themselves
3: I heard a lecture um, a long time ago about uh, the Milgram experiment. It's the experiment where the subject was in control of a device that the subject thought was giving electric shocks to what was, in fact, one of the experimenters who was pretending to be shocked. And there was another um, experimenter um, over the shoulder of the person, and any time they would try to be worried or concerned about the person that they were giving higher and higher and higher electric shocks to, the um, the person behind them would say, "No, please keep going. You you agreed to do this, and and things like that." So what was disturbing about that experiment is how far people would go, um, and and how how much they would just apparently defer to authority and keep delivering what looked like extraordinarily painful shocks to the other person. So I heard a lecture about this a long time ago where the hypothesis that the um, that the lecture put forward was that it was important to that result that it was incremental so that at any point that you decided to stop, you were going to have to live with the fact that you had done wrong things for the last however many <laughs> minutes, <laughs> right? And and that that, that that was what was making people um, not be able to just say no. Interesting. I thought it was very interesting. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if there's any follow-up to... to, to test that someone but. wrote
1: to milgram uh, there was a there was a, a criticism of the experiment um that i read the response milgram's response to and the criticism was like this is bad science and blah 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 and milgram's response amounted to uh you're only upset and because of what it showed, like if it had showed that people are incredibly like self-possessed and don't like do bad things when told to by people in white lab codes, you wouldn't be upset at this. You're upset because it like revealed something unpleasant about the human condition, which I thought was kind of a funny, uh, witty rejoinder to the criticism.
2: And probably true. I mean, one of the things that this all gets to, to me, is that there's a lot There's a more complicated relationship between individual and social action that I think people often give credit for. I was thinking about this recently. Um, Jonathan Safran Foer released a book not long ago. I think it's called We Are the Weather. And it's about um, eating in a way that is better for climate change. And in the book, he often says, look, we need uh, policy action. We need big systemic change. But also we have our own individual actions and like we should change the way we eat and eat less meat and so on. And I was reading a review of it in The Nation that was very, very tough on it for being so focused on individual action, even though it had these disclaimers. You know, the and I see this on the left a lot, a, a real fury at people who say, who focus on what individuals are doing when they're collective solutions. But something that I, I, I think is true, that I've seen a lot in politics, and that goes to to your point, Mike, about how it's very hard to admit wrong, uh, to, to admit error, is people will not support anything that makes them feel like what they've been doing is wrong. Uh, People will support things that make them feel smug about what they've been doing, that make them feel like what they've been doing is right. But it's very, very, very difficult to get people to um, support a policy that in some way casts moral aspersion on them. I mean, right now in politics, That we've been going through these fights between Elizabeth Warren and the billionaires, and there are these funny kind of fights because the billionaires keep saying, "I'm fine to pay taxes. I'll pay more taxes. I just don't like you saying mean things to me." Yeah, right. If you boil down what everybody's saying, it ends up being that that people have an incredible, an incredibly high weight on. Feeling internally like they are a good person who's been doing the right thing. And they will vote for things that affirm that. But they will very rarely. It takes a lot for people to make a. to vote into a policy that what it says is you've been doing the wrong thing and you should change how you are acting. And we are going to agree collectively to do that together. That somehow that I often. I am skeptical of individual action for collective problems, but it seems to me that it actually becomes important in creating the space for people to create collective solutions to collective problems.
1: Yes. We've arrived at this point in history where somehow every day a billionaire is on TV, like literally in some cases crying because they feel so bullied by these, (laughs) by these um, proposals, these policy proposals. And um, you know, I don't know how many billionaires there are. There's like 2000 of them or something, but they are so outsized in their, in the way that they are influencing everything really. And now uh, already like monetarily and policy and everything else. And now it's like, how dare you? I have like, there's a, there's a weird kind of inverted, um, view of, of what success means. Right. It's like, it, it, it is actually sort of begging the question. It's like, I am successful because I am rich and smart or something. And the, the attitude of people is because I am this, I am that, and the this is rich, and the that is a good person. Like a good and good means smart and capable, and I've I have a, a I have like an acumen or a kind of ability that has um, that is outsized and that has led me to this good fortune. Utterly ignoring like all of the existing policy. Uh, like a lack of an actually progressive tax system, um, like a like the a la- the fact that the inheritance tax was obliterated, um, which has allowed people to accumulate wealth at this incredibly massive rate. And instead of reading their wealth as like the combination of a lot of factors, it seems like some billionaires are reading their wealth as just proof that they're good, which is very weird. Like I I, I am comparatively speaking, me Mike Shore, I am comparatively speaking. Uh, very, very wealthy. I'm, I'm a TV producer and writer and I have been for 20 years now and I make a lot of money by any standard. I do not think that the money that I have means has any bearing on whether I'm good or bad as a person. I would never think that's a that's a crazy leap to make to think that it's proof of anything other than I have a certain skill that happens to be highly valued in America from 1998 to the present. And, but there is a belief. You can see it. You can hear it in their voices. You can see it in their literal tears. There's a belief that they are, that billionaires are being attacked for being bad. That they, it's almost like, I wonder if it's actually like accidentally, sort of emotionally revealing, right? Because like, they no one said they were bad. No one has said they're bad. No one says well, like, some people say they bad. some
2: people say there shouldn't be that billionaires is a way in which it is revealing. They're just like everybody else. They just want everybody to like them. Yeah. Right? I, but and like they they thought being a billionaire meant that society would see them as high status. And now people come along and say, not only should you pay more taxes, but we should think of you as sort of part of the problem. And I'm just fascinated by the way they're responsive. I'll pay the higher taxes, but how dare you say I'm part of the problem? Yeah. And I think there's one way to look at it is about billionaires. But I think that's kind of how everybody is, actually. I agree. I
1: I didn't mean to look (laughs) individual billionaires. People are like, you're bad. Like, I think Mark Zuckerberg's a bad person. Like, he's doing bad things. (laughs) He's acting badly. And I, I think he's bad. But I don't think that the reason he's bad is his like, I don't think his money is the reason he's bad or something like I'm 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 only trying to separate. I feel like the like a, there is a there's a certain attitude about fr- on the on behalf of wealthy people that their money. It's almost like this ancient you know puritanical thing where like the ancient puritanical view is like ascetic and and you know don't be gaudy and and live a life of asceticism. And then they came to America and they started making a ton of money and they were like maybe the fact that we're rich means that God's smiling on us and it's actually good to be rich and so we should be happy we should like build bigger houses and stuff like people just find a way to sort of justify wealth in and have it mean something uh, in terms of how morally pure they are right and that to me is the thing i can't get around like i i just i individual people can be good or bad but the proof of that is not how much money you have or how successful you've been it just is a it's a bizarre leap to me
3: So a lot of my um, research is about the free will problem and moral responsibility and free will. And it's an old and long standing fact that if um, people who are on the top of the pile, um, it's important to them for just the reasons we've been talking about, that they deserve to be there. Right. That they got there by their own hard effort. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when you say, no, no, it's actually socially, um, you know, you didn't build that, you know, when you try to say that with Obama, you get a, you get a lot of blowback. Yeah. So sometimes when I'm um, talking to people, they um, think that ethics isn't like, oh, people don't really care about ethics. People aren't really don't really worry about that in the in the real hard world of push and pull and economics. And it's remarkable to me. That it, sometimes I think it's the only thing people care about. <laughs> right. I mean, so so even, you know, we we have a, a, a president who is in my opinion, one of the worst humans I have (laughs) ever seen. He even cares about like defending himself, justifying himself immediately, many times a day, uh, you know, over Twitter. So when you start to suggest that um, somebody's um, disposable income is not the result of their is not purely yeah. the result of their hard work. And maybe there's some thing they owe back to society. Yeah, that's very threatening to them. Yeah. Um, because it suggests that the story that they can tell themselves about why it's okay for them to be on the top of the heap is not a good story.
1: One of my favorite lines from the character Brent this year on the show was, he said, uh, I went to Princeton University. No handouts, by the way. I earned my spot there, just like my father and his yeah, father yeah, before yeah, him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Such a good line. Yeah. It's funny, during this whole conversation, I've been thinking about a line from one of your past shows, um, uh, Parks and Rec, where I still think, of, I still use this line sometimes in conversations, where... Um, Ron Swanson had his pyramid of virtues and one of the boxes said capitalism, God's way of showing who is smart and who is poor. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he was a true
1: 19th century libertarian. Um, But importantly, with that character, he actually walked the walk Uh, and he lived on. He lived in a house by himself and like killed his own meat and wanted to tear down the government to the level of at one point, I think I don't know if this aired or not, but he. He had an idea for how he could um, reduce the size of government. And one of the ideas was remove all the stoplights in the town because they were using electricity <laughs> that taxpayers had to pay for. So he was a he was a purist. Um, and even he, over the course of that show, ended up making some bonds with other people and his life got a little better. So
2: one one of the things I wonder about for, for both of you after the show, because it's going to come to an end is. Mike, you've been able to to now warp TV to to centrally investigate the question of being a good person, and 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 Pam, you've been able to influence a show that's bringing moral philosophy to masses at a at a level um, that has maybe never happened before. I'm curious if you if either of you think about what does it mean for your next projects morally, like how do you either how are you either this engaged with these questions or are able to have this much consequence through these questions well
1: uh talk to me in a, a year or so i guess i mean i think there's a way to remain engaged with these questions without having them explicitly woven into the fabric of a show i would probably argue that some of the ethical questions i mean we on parks and rec leslie nope at one point ran for office and she was um a government employee she worked in the parks department and We did extensive research about the Hatch Act and tried to learn like, well, what does it mean? You can't campaign when you're a government employee. You can't campaign on government property. You can't take phone calls about your campaign. And we actually did a cold open to one episode where she had to like step outside every time she wanted to talk about her campaign it's been hilarious to watch in the last three years, the Hatch Act literally set on fire and thrown, <laughs> thrown into the ocean by the current administration as they, uh, actively campaign for the, you know, Kellyanne Conway's actively, she's violated the Hatch Act like 55 times or something. So apparently, uh, no one really cares about the Hatch Act anymore, but, um, that those ethical, there were certain ethical questions that came up all the time in other shows I've worked on. I would imagine that going forward, they'll continue to, I'll still be interested in ethics and, to some extent, moral philosophy without actually having it be the sort of central spine of the entire show. So I don't exactly know. I I think, um, I think that the answer will come. It's, it's so deeply ingrained in me now. I have to say that I don't imagine just writing a show. I mean, I, by the way, I could be eating my words because (laughs) after four years of this, I might, I might just want to write a dumb, like odd couple style comedy about two ding-dongs who live in an apartment. But i can't imagine ever leaving all of this behind i i I care about it a lot i think about it a lot i think it's the most interesting stuff you can chew on as a writer so i i feel like it'll be present in some way shape or form in anything i ever do
3: so uh, i was writing a book when mike met me and i'm still writing that (laughs) book
1: (laughs) how long Um, is the book
3: uh, right now, it's 315 pages, but I wrote a different book in, the, in between, so that one's about 100 All right. pages. well, you should
1: have mentioned that. That seems like <laughs> an important detail.
3: Um, so, you know, I'm going to keep doing what I do uh, in, in terms of teaching and, and, and writing for the audiences that I write for. This experience has really highlighted for me the difference between the way I communicate and, uh, on the one hand, narrative or story. Um, which I'm, I think, singularly disabled about (laughs) understanding or or not understanding, but that's not the way I communicate. Um, And and it's actually been interesting in my teaching because it's made me think about the lectures. I Some of the lectures I give are built around a story. And those are, in hindsight, unsurprisingly, some of the more successful (laughs) lectures. So um, what's been interesting to me is seeing that through these collaborations, either with Mike or also um, sometimes with journalists who have since contacted me and asked me to um, communicate with them about the show. And then they've gone on to write like the New York Times had an article and some some other articles about the show that um, there's this, these possibilities of collaboration between someone like myself, who is very much a specialist in a very kind of weird niche set of thinking (laughs) and people whose skill set and profession is exactly to communicate to broader audiences. Um, and that to me seems very exciting and, um, and, and a kind of thing that, uh, was not as difficult as I might have thought it was and was a lot of fun and, um, and hopefully there can be more of.
2: So on the subject of books, the question I always stand the podcast is ask for a couple book recommendations. And so let me ask you both for two. Starting with you, Mike, what are two books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience?
1: I was told it was three. Are we running short on time? <laughs> uh,
2: we can do three. No, I got time. I just didn't want to. Didn't want to push you guys too so, much. Uh,
1: uh, I found this. Uh, I was told that you asked this question, um, and I found it incredibly hard to to narrow down. Like w- when you ask uh, for like three books and influence you, like uh, I, it was very hard. So I'd like to apologize to all of the unnamed authors that I don't mention. Um, the first one I picked was um, the book Ordinary Vices by Judith Sklar. So uh, this is a book that I didn't read until pretty late in the process of making this show. And the episode that it really uh, comes into play is the next one that airs, uh, which will be in January. Um, she was a uh, she was like in the uh, a philosophy professor and also a professor of i think government at harvard and other places um and she wrote this book called ordinary vices and the first essay in it is called putting cruelty first and it became of all of the things that i read after the initial wave of uh, reading that i did this was the this was sort of the most important one to me personally um and she basically says that like cruelty is not a sin that we think of as important because it's not a sin against God. It's not like one of the seven deadly sins, right? It's not pride, which is like a putting yourself above God or something. It's sins against other creatures. That's what cruelty is. And she writes uh, at one point, she says, if cruelty uh, horrifies us, then we must, given the facts of daily life, always be in a state of outrage, um, which I think is 100% true. The amount of cruelty in the world of people being cruel to other people is so uh consistent and pervasive that it means that we're all, we should always be outraged at everything that's happening uh it's a wonderful essay it was very meaningful to me and it, it it's a big part of the next episode of the show and uh i rec- and it's also unlike a lot of the stuff that i read to make this show it's uh actually readable you can actually <laughs> understand it <laughs> if you're immortal um a mortal, not immortal, and then the other two. I'll go out of the world of philosophy. The first one is um, "The Spy Who Came in from the Cold" by John le Carré, one of his first novels. And to me, um, as a person who, like Pam said, is interested in narrative fiction, I think it's the per- it's the most perfect story ever written. In some ways, it's um it's very short. It's like two hundred and something pages. It's a perfect spy story. It's the prose is beautiful, but um, he writes, Lacare writes at his best uh, with like the minimum number of words that you need to write every sentence, which is such a wonderful teaching tool. Um, there's not a single wasted word or sentence or paragraph or anything. And yet at the end of it, you feel completely satisfied. It's like a, exactly what every uh, sort of story should be i think um and then the final one and this is extreme recency bias um but i have this kind of one person book club that i started with myself uh about six years ago where every time i'm finished with a a show or a season of a show i read one book that i've never read that's like embarrassing that i've never read that when people bring it up Um, I always have to shamefully say I've never read that and I'm sorry. So over the last few years I've read, I read the Brothers Karamazov, which I never read, which was incredible. Um, and I read, uh, The Namesake by Jhumpa Lahiri, which was great. And the last one I read was Beloved by Toni Morrison, which I had never read. And it turns out it's amazing. Uh, (laughs) Nobel prize winner, Toni Morrison wrote an amazing book. Um, and the reason that it influenced me was almost the opposite. Not the opposite it was like a a, a different version of the la thing which was to say i don't understand how every sentence of that book has the amount of thought and care that it has like every sentence that she writes in that book is like feels like um like a statue that she carved out of marble over the course of 20 years it's this uh, it's just amazing. I don't, it's a feat of writing that I don't think I've ever sort of personally witnessed before where it feels so, so rich and dense and her, the way that she crafts her sentences and her dialogue is, um, it just, it, it, I don't, it feels like it should have taken 500 years to write that book. Uh, it just sort of blew me away. So those are my three books.
2: Those are great blurbs.
3: So I'm always at a little bit of a loss for recommendations. Um, the question I was prepped for was what has influenced you? And there, certainly uh, What We Owe to Each Other, the, the Scanlan book, has been a big influence. Um, another has, was uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's Being a Nothingness. Um, neither of those are particularly easy to read. <laughs> but a book that I do like to recommend to people who are interested in contemporary philosophy is is now kind of an old book called Mortal Questions by Thomas Nagel. Uh, and it's just a collection of essays, um, each of which is kind of smart and interesting. And um and it seems to me a, a that that's a book I'm happy to recommend to to anybody who's interested in.
1: I've never it's on my list of things that I never got to.
3: Yeah, it's 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 a nice little book. Yeah. It's it's got some, it's got a um so one of its reflections is about. The human, very human experience of of looking at the stars at night, and um, and suddenly feeling like your problems have just been put into perspective. It's all, you know, it's all become diminished or something. And Nagel makes the the amazing um, observation. He's like, "Why? Why would that be? <laughs> I mean, it, it. There is. We know there is absolutely no correlation between size." And importance. <laughs> that's amazing,
2: <laughs> right? So that's an amazing line. Yeah, yeah. So,
3: so anyway, that's in that book.
2: <laughs> um, Michael Shore, Pam Haranami, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That is the episode. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. Uh, okay, so some quick requests and updates here at the end. Uh, if you are enjoying the show and you have not rated us on Apple Podcast, that's unethical. That doesn't work under a utilitarian or consequential scheme. I think we all agree. Yeah, I think we all agree that if we were setting rules in an ideal world, that the rule would be if you're enjoying a podcast, you have to rate it on Apple Podcasts. So come on. Uh, you've you've heard the show. (laughs) Um, We're going to be doing another Ask Me Anything. So if you've got questions for me, uh, please email them to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And then for those of you wondering, uh, I've mentioned this on some intros, but clearly that's not a super great way to communicate. Uh, But the Climate Series will be wrapping up by Christmas. Uh, I apologize for the long wait in the middle of that. An episode I needed for the sequencing to work the way I wanted it to work fell out of the schedule and it took time to reschedule it. And it was I've learned a lot about how to schedule these a little bit more robustly but it will be really good um, I'm really excited about the episodes we have coming and that will be coming through the final few weeks of December and we'll wrap it by Christmas thank you to Michael Shore and Pam Hieronymi thank you to Rishi Karma for researching Jeffrey Geld for producing these are Clown Shows and Vox Media podcast production Thank you, that was wonderful.
1: That was intense. <laughs> <laughs> Super fun.
0: This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi Fi? Oh my, look at that! He is.